children who want to be uh, in choir practice, you may be dismissed at this time. And uh, then those children will be returned back here in this room, if that's where they started from, or they'll be returned to the nursery area, if that's where they're picked up from. This morning, I would direct us to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to begin reading at verse 8 and read down through verse 15, although this morning we'll just look primarily at verses 8, 9, and 10, and then we'll take a shot at 11 through 15, Lord willing, next week. That's on page 991. If you would uh, like to use a Bible, there should be one in front of you. Either way, 1 Timothy chapter 1, and uh, uh, beginning at verse 8. This, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, rather, I'm sorry. This is God's word for us this morning, and here's what God says. I desire that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she, shall, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. You may be seated. Father, we thank you for your word, for there is no word quite like your word. Every word of yours is true, and it's not an old, dusty truth. It's a living and active and powerful truth. And that's our prayer, is that these truths would, would, would be at work in our hearts and lives, that we would love these things, that we would embrace these things, that we would order our lives in accordance with these things. And so help us. We, we ask not merely for the sake of gaining information. We ask for the sake of the transformation of our hearts and souls. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know, now why I'm going to take two weeks to get through this. It's going to take a... Take me a courage to work up to next week. I, I might mysteriously get sick or something. So We chuckle about that. Actually, what's so interesting is that until really the 20th century, these verses, these instructions, these commands, these statements were not controversial. And yet today... Uh, we even kind of flinch in reading them. I'm tempted to chicken out. Today, we, we, we 
feel the full controversy that swirls around these verses. Controversy, not merely from the world. I mean, what you would expect that, but controversy even within the church. Even our own denomination or our fellowship of churches is, is grappling with and is getting fruit loopy on some of these very things mentioned here in these verses. It's not always been controversial to the church. The controversy today is, is, is not that these verses are unclear. The controversy is that they are clear and we just don't believe them. They are not difficult to understand, although they do pose some interpretive challenges. It's just that even we in the church, are, the, the broader culture uh, has conformed us to its own pattern of thinking. Now, here's a hypothetical to get us off the hook. If these words are not God's words, then the problems go away. We just shrug, hold up our hands and say, oh, well, the times, they have changed. Let's get with the times. But this is God's word. And it's an enduring word. While it has some cultural applications and expressions listed in here, its instructions are not rooted in cultural phenomenon, but, in, but rooted in that which transcends culture. This is God's good word. It's a true word. It's an eternal word. It's a necessary word. And it's a clear word. Just as we lay our eyes on verse 8, which speaks to men, and then verses 9 and 10 that speak to women, even the fact that we have to make note of the fact that this passage, God's word, works from the premise that men are men and women are women. And that there are vital and glorious differences between men and women. It's not, uh, they're not, it's not interchangeable. And even though men and women share equality in terms of each being made in the image of God, equality should not be reduced down to assume sameness. Now, let me mention a couple things, and this will be pertinent for this morning and next week. Um, if I live to tell about uh, uh, things after I'm done this morning, then we'll, we'll even tackle the harder stuff next week. So, But there's a chance I might not even make it through this. But... First of all, even from the passage that we read in the verses 8 and 9 and 10 that we look at this morning, let me, let me just say very emphatically um, that this passage does not teach 
that women today cannot braid their hair or wear pearls or have gold. But if you're willing to get rid of your gold and your pearls, if you give them to me, I'll take care of them for you. So, This passage does not teach that women cannot talk, that they must stay completely quiet the moment they walk in the door of the church. This passage does not teach that all men are able to teach in the gathered assembly. This passage does not teach that all men have... Uh, Native authority over all women, all times, all places, everywhere. This passage does not teach that salvation is by works of childbearing. So see, there's lots of nooks and crevices that we could fall into if we miss the point of this text. A passage like this can be misused and misapplied. And it has been, equally, by men and women. We could ignore the real point, or we could tr twist the real point and come up with some sort of distorted notion of what's the true burden of this text. I would remind us that while we are looking at verses 8, 9, and 10 in 1 Timothy chapter 2, I would remind us that an overarching passage in 1 Timothy is in chapter 3, verse 15. That, that in a sense, this, we're revisiting that again because that verse helps us to set the verses that we're going to look at in a proper context you would remember that Paul says in 3, 14 and 15, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The whole letter was written so that Churches would know how they ought to behave, how people who comprise churches ought to know how they ought to behave. Now, what chapter 2 lands in on us, particularly as we get to verse 8 through 15, is it, uh, it, 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 it begins to describe something of how men and women ought to behave in the gathered church. I say that, say, because on the one hand, while the things that we're going to consider and look at uh, in these verses, both today and next week, while there are implications for other aspects of life and home and church, it's specifically eight and following, chapter two, verses eight and following, are specifically addressing the church gathered on the Lord's day for worship. How are we supposed to act? And I think verses 8 through 10 tell us two things about how we're supposed to act in worship. First of all, worship involves holy men. Secondly, worship includes godly women. 
That's what we're going to look at, one at a time. Try to make our way through this. Worship involves, first of all, holy men. My desire, he writes in 2.8, I desire then that in every place uh, uh, men should pray. Now, again, don't get out of balance here. This is not saying women can't pray. That you're missing the point there. Don't make me come over there. No, but, but here, part of what we're, what, what we're developing here is that Paul gives specific instructions to men and specific instructions to women because, because they're not the same. There are unique differences and the instructions he gives to the one and not to the other is not that, that, that there's nothing pertinent whatsoever in, in a crossover, but yet these instructions are in, 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 in an essential challenge for each gender rooted in the unique way and the vital role that God has given to each gender. So it's not that women can't pray, it's just that Men are called to be leaders. Men are to be the head. And as the head, as the leaders, we set a tone. And the tone we set would first of all be reflected in the fact that we're first in line to pray. That's how we would lead. Come here, follow me. We're going to pray. Men should pray. Goes on to say, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Not only are these instructions directed in terms of uh, challenging us in essential ways rooted in our unique way of being and our vital role as men and or women. Uh, But it's also, these words are also rooted in the particular way that sin distorts each gender. Men are to lead because men have been given by God the strength to lead. And there we go again. I'm not saying that women are not strong. I would suggest to you, however, that women are strong, but I would suggest their strength is in different ways and for different purposes. Men are to leverage their strength to express the courage to be head and to be leader. And yet how sin distorts that, how sin distorts the, the, the God-given strength we have to, to be leaders is sin distorts our strength so that we leverage our strength uh, to express anger and to get into needless fights. 
So what Paul is particularly addressing men in the church to be aware of is uh, you've been made strong, but be on guard with improper anger and quarreling. I'm, I'm not even suggesting that only men get angry and that only men quarrel. But I'm suggesting to you that there is a unique calling that God has placed on men to which he's given them strength to carry out that calling, to which sin distorts that strength and that calling, and to which we then use that strength, that we use that responsibility of leadership to, to be equated as increased privilege not. Increased responsibility is not measured by increased privilege. It's measured by increased need for sacrificial love. When men are given over to anger, when men are given over to needless quarreling, it goes more to the crux of a distortion of why God made them strong to begin with. And the way for men to escape the snare of sinful distortions of their calling is for men to understand that the strength they have is from the Lord and the strength they have is to be leveraged for the purposes of the Lord. And how they reflect that is they lift up their hand. I, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know I've already lost the guys. I ain't lifting up my hands. You want to fight about it? No, I don't want to fight you about it. I wouldn't want to embarrass you and whoop you in church. Just kidding. On the one hand, this, is the, this, this could, could be a point where we miss the point, and that is the, I would suggest to you that while, while body posture in prayer is a relevant matter, that sometimes the Bible speaks about praying when you're sitting down, and sometimes the Bible speaks about praying sometimes when you're standing up, and the Bible speaks about praying sometimes when you're laying prostrate on the floor, uh, and sometimes the Bible lifts up hand. I would suggest to you that it's, it's, it's not simply a body posture. It's the heart that gives rise to that body posture. And what we are to offer up to the Lord is our hands. Why our hands, guys? Why doesn't tell ladies to offer up their hands? Why? Because we've been suited with strength and our hands signify that strength. In the scripture, at least, that's how it's portrayed. God will often say when he's about to show his strength, he will say, with outstretched hand. Which hands signify strength. With a mighty hand and outstretched arms. Or the king of Assyria would say to himself in Isaiah 10, by the strength of my hand. Our hands signify our strength. As a sidebar, that's why we would teach our sons to give a good, firm shake. Because that conveys that we're men. Conveys that we were made by God with strength. 
And yet, and yet in offering up these hands, this strength before God in prayer, we are the first in line to say, Lord, this strength is from you. I, I am strong in the strength that God provides. And Lord, may this be a holy strength. May it be a strength that is submitted to you. May it be a strength that is set apart for you. May it be a strength that is leveraged under the authority of Jesus. And yet, when we distort the strength that God gives to us by improper anger, and you, know, and you hear me say improper anger, I'm not saying that all anger is improper, but I'm saying that, boy, that's probably more of what it is than not. But anyway, but improper anger and unnecessarily quarreling. In the very next uh, chapter, in chapter 3, speaking of uh, qualifications for the office of elder, it says, uh, among other things, in verse 3 of chapter 3, that he must be gentle and not quarrelsome. In other words, he knows what to do with strength. He knows how to control that strength, so he's gentle. And he knows not to entangle himself in unnecessary quarreling and fighting Chapter 6 of First Timothy, he speaks of false teachers and our interactions with false teachers. And he says these false teachers, they, they quarrel about words. Or in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, we are told to not quarrel about words. Or in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, we are told the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. In other words, the strength that God has given to us needs to be run through the development of our character and our virtue as, it is, as our strength is submitted to God and purpose to be used for God's purposes. Oh, God made men strong for good reasons. God made men strong so that they would use that strength to protect and to defend and to contend and to guard. But sin gets in the middle of our strength and it takes that good impulse of leveraging strength for the purposes of protecting and defending and guarding and, and contending, and it distorts it. And, and therefore, we go around wanting to pick wrong kind of fights. You see, Paul is challenging when he says, men, I, 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 I desire that, that, that men um, in every place should pray, lifting holy hands without anger and quarreling. Paul is particularly challenging men as men at the point of their unique glory. Proverbs 20, verse 29 says that, that, the, that, that, that the strength of young men is their glory. We are to use the strength of our hands for God's purposes. For he's the one who gave us strength 
in our hands. And yet sometimes we, 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 we miss attending to our primary calling of leveraging strength. And it gets distorted and it gets bogged down. And, and is it, again, on the one hand, it's a stereotype, but, but, but why is our culture um, uh, so incessantly um, making mention of the angry white man syndrome? Well, I got news for you. It ain't only white men that are angry. That's what we do. We do us some anger. And on the one hand, we do us some anger because God made us strong. On the other hand, we do anger the, the wrong way because sin distorts our strength. Because anger, honestly, in its right sense, when it's properly um, uh, expressed, anger is a response, a godly response to something that we love being threatened. If someone threatened your kids or your grandkids, you'd start to feel something. It, it's, it's boiling. It's festering. And, and that's anger that's triggered by love. But here's the catch. Sometimes our anger, when it's improperly expressed, when we leverage our strength in improper anger, it's because actually our loves are disordered. It's not about loving our kids or our grandkids. It's about, I love me some of myself and my convenience and my not want to be bothered and not want to be pestered and not want to be aggravated. And so leave me alone. Not that I'm saying that's ever been said before. Just hypothetically. See, that's anger because who you love is you. And so that's why we have to take the strength that God gives to us as symbolized in our hands. We have to lift it up to God. There's nothing that'll mess up a church gathering easier and faster than a bunch of angry men who don't know that their strength comes from the Lord and it's to be used for the purposes of the Lord. But there's a second thing that'll mess up a church faster than anything. And so he says in verses 8 and 9, likewise, um, uh, men, uh, I'm sorry, 9 and 10, likewise, uh, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Whew. 
women should adorn themselves. Whereas, whereas in verse 8, he has shown that uh, men who are strong, that's what they are, they're to be strong, um, they need a necessary related warning to issues of anger and quarreling. And if God made men strong, God made women beautiful. And yet, just as men's native strength from the Lord needs a related warning, then women's native beauty from the Lord needs a related warning. Just as sin distorts men's strength to express itself in, in an improper anger and unnecessarily quarreling, then, 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 then the woman's natural uh, gift of beauty, uh, uh, sin can distort that and, that and and therefore it needs a related warning uh, to attention to and attention with physical appearance. It's a basic tendency for, for in men to distort the strength to become anger. It's a tendency in women to distort their beauty to be showy and suggestive and seductive. I would suggest to you that the words braided hair and pearls and gold are cultural applications pertinent to that day and that time. In other words, by dressing and looking that way, they were, they were associating themselves with seedier aspects of attire and dress in that day and that time. I don't think the scripture has a universal prohibition all times, all places against braided hair and pearls and gold. Now that doesn't flatten this whole passage and say the whole thing just must be culturally defined. No, and we'll get into that more specifically, Lord willing, next week. But what I would encourage you to consider today is not get bogged down in the braided hairs and the pearls and the gold, but I would, I would encourage you to, to get to the gist of what he's really aiming at. Those are just uh, cultural applications and expressions. In our own day, in our own culture, it might be some other terms that he would use, which I won't get into. Go home and ask your husbands. <laughs> but what he does say that I think is timeless, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. Hmm. They should dress respectably. He tags on to that later um, uh, with, um, uh, with, with what is proper for women who profess godliness. 
That word respectable is actually used in the very next chapter uh, to speak in a broad way about elders. It says elders should be respectable. And really what's profound about that word respectable is that what he's really saying about elders and, and even here about women is that women and elders should... Uh, In this case, women should dress in a way that encourages respect, that makes it easy for someone to respect you. If you want somebody to respect you, you should dress like you want somebody to respect you. You should talk like you want somebody to respect you. You you should carry yourself as though you want somebody to respect you. And you should dress like you want somebody to respect you. That's, that's the timeless thing. and I, I, I'm not the clothing police. But whatever you do decide to wear, you have to purpose in your heart that you want to wear what you want to wear because you want to make it easy for people to respect you. You you want to dress in such a way that you put people at ease around you. You should not want to dress in such a way, and this is such a challenge in our own day and age, where we say, I'm unique, and I live and have a right to express my uniquenesses. Well, ain't that special. And so we dress in a way that shocks. We, we dress in a way that tries to power over people. We dress in a way that tries to distract people. We should dress in a way that seeks to refrain from seeking to draw attention to ourselves. Oh, that means on the one hand that you don't show up here as ratty as you can get. So we're not going to probably have wear your pajamas today at church anytime soon. I'm just saying. So... Um, on the other hand, on the extreme, we, we, it's, it's not necessary, nor is it helpful to dress over the top. Again, certain contexts um, play themselves out in different ways. It would, be, it would be wrong for me to dress up in my $2,000 Armani suit this morning, if I had one, that is. And of course, if there's a way I could get out of the house with it, I would dress in my overalls this morning. But uh, I couldn't make it out of the house, first of all, with that. And secondly, that wouldn't, be, that wouldn't fit this context either. We should dress in a way that attempts to reflect the posture of our heart, that we wouldn't posture to be seductive or suggestive or arrogant or haughty. We, we should actually put on what we put on We should consider others in how we dress. Not because we are people pleasers, but because we aspire to be lovers of people. We want to dress 
how we can dress in our service to others. So we would refrain. I know this is particularly targeted at ladies in this context because, again, I think while, while our strength in men gives, can be distorted by sin to be anger and improper quarreling, the strength of ladies and their beauty can be given away to giving too much attention to themselves and, and their physical appearance and using that physical appearance in, in wrong ways, ways that are showy and suggest, suggestive and seductive and that's not what God desires for his church as they gather when we consider what we wear we do not obsess with undue cost or with undue attention In, in fact, if we want to, quote unquote, express ourselves, then we would do that not in the way that our culture would do with attire and other accoutrements on ourselves, but we would turn and see what this passage tells us to focus on in terms of expressing ourselves. There's a sense in which if you just hear from this passage, it's about what you shouldn't or shouldn't, should wear, then you, again, you miss the point. It's about how what you wear readies you to do what you're in, to be engaged in doing. And what is it that you're to be engaged in doing? Displaying godliness through good works. And so wear what helps you to display godliness through good works. That's how ladies are to express themselves. Focus upon good works. I'll throw it out there. If you want to turn heads, focus on good works, not good looks. Do good, be godly. Give attention to blessing others. Others, not, not give undue attention to your own looks and leveraging those looks for nefarious ends or sinful outcomes, but give attention to blessing others in need with your good works. That glorify God, glorifies God. And I, and I know that Matthew 5.16 is not a ladies only verse but it's pertinent here in this context. When Jesus says, here's how you can stand out. Here's how you ought to be seen. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify your Father. Stand out. Be seen. Express yourself by wearing what you need to wear so that you are prepared to express godliness through good works.
improper anger and improper focus upon attention upon appearance are two things that will kill the worship and the gathering in a local church. These are things that displease the Lord. These are not ways that we should behave in the household of God. And the one who has authority over his church is the one who is issuing us these words this morning. Now, on the one hand, it's just like, I don't know what any of this has to do with Jesus. I thought he rescues us. Didn't you guys sing a whole bunch about that as we got started? I'm glad you brought that up. When Jesus rescues us, he pardons us of all of our sins. But those who turn to Jesus are, 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 are now able to return to original dimensions of humanity. In Jesus, we become humans again. In Jesus, men can become men again who use the strength that God gave them to lead and to guard and to protect, not be given over to improper anger. That's what sin brought about. And in Jesus Christ, God takes the beauty he gave to women and he enables them and fits them and resources them to leverage that beauty for the purposes of showing good works. Holy men and godly women, that's all the church really needs. And you know what? It's the gospel that helps men to be men again and helps ladies to be ladies again. And it's the gospel that then is to be on display as we gather in corporate worship. See what Jesus does with his men and with his women. Thank you, Father, for your word. There's no word like your word. And our prayer is that you would help us to hear these words. And that our hearts would receive these words. And that we would go before you. And that us men would be holy men. With the strength that you've given for the purpose that purposes that you've instructed and that our ladies would be godly ladies with the beauty that you've given to them that they would leverage that beauty for purposes of goodness and good works oh father may your church reflect the transformative power of your gospel we pray this in Jesus name amen let's stand and